Chapter Twenty of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, The Order for the Burial of the Dead. It is a little difficult to write a critical note of a funeral office simply because people's feelings are so much bound up in it that any criticism seems a cruelty and any interference seems an impertinence. Round the open grave all controversy should be hushed, that no jarring sounds may mingle with the sobs of the mourners, and no quarrels wring the torn hearts of the survivors. Our criticism of this office, then, will be brief and grave. The opening verses strike us first as manifestly inappropriate. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Yet the dead is then being carried to his last home, and the words seem a mockery spoken in the face of a corpse. In the fourth gospel they preface the raising of Lazarus, and of course are then very significant, but to-day no power raises our dead, no voice of Jesus says to the mourners, Weep not. The second verse from Job is, as is well known, an utter mistranslation. Without my flesh would be nearer the truth than in my flesh, and worms and body are not mentioned in the original at all. It seems a pity that in such solemn moments known falsehoods should be used. The whole argument in the fifteenth chapter of Corinthians is the reverse of convincing. Christ is not the first fruits of them that slept. A dead man had been raised by touching the bones of Elisha, two kings twelve. Elisha in his lifetime had raised the dead son of the Shunammite, two kings four. Elijah before him had raised the son of the widow of Zarephath, two kings seventeen. Christ had raised Lazarus, the daughter of Jairus, and the son of a widow. In no sense, then, if the scriptures of the Christians be true, can it be said that Christ has become the first fruits, the first begotten from the dead? For since by man came death, but death did not come by man, myriads of ages before man was in the world, animals were born, lived, and died, and they have left their fossilized remains to prove the falsity of the popular belief. We notice also that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If this be so, what becomes of the resurrection of the flesh, spoken of in the baptismal and visitation offices? What has become of the flesh and bones which Christ had after his resurrection, and with which, according to the fourth article, he has gone into heaven? Cannot Christ inherit the kingdom of God? It is hard to see how, in any sense, the resurrection of Christ can be taken as a proof of the resurrection of man. Christ was only dead thirty-six or thirty-seven hours before he is said to have risen again. There was no time for bodily decay, no time for corruption to destroy his frame. How could the restoration to life of a man whose body was in perfect preservation prove the possibility of the resurrection of the bodies which have long since been resolved into their constituent elements and have gone to form other bodies, and to give shape to other modes of existence. People talk in such superior fashion of the resurrection that they never stop to remember its necessary details, or to think where is to be found sufficient matter wherewith to clothe all the human souls on the resurrection morn. The bodies of the dead make the earth more productive, they nourish vegetable existence. Transformed into grass they feed the sheep and the cattle. Transformed into these they sustain human beings transformed into these they form new bodies once more and pass from birth to death and from death to birth again a perfect circle of life 
transmuted by nature's alchemy from form to form. No man has a freehold of his body. He possesses only a life tenancy, and then it passes into other hands. The melancholy dirge which succeeds this chapter sounds like a wail of despair. Man hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up, and is cut down like a flower. He fleeth as it were a shadow, and never continueth in one stay. Can any teaching be more utterly unwholesome? It is the confession of the most complete helplessness, the recognition of the futility of toil, and then the agonised pleading, O Lord God most holy, O Lord most mighty, O holy and most merciful Saviour, deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. But if he be most merciful, whence all this need of weeping and wailing? If he be most merciful, what danger can there be of the bitter pains of eternal death? And again the cry rises, Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayer, but spare us, Lord most holy, O God most mighty, O holy and merciful Saviour, thou most worthy judge eternal, suffer us not at our last hour for any pains of death to fall from thee. It is nothing but the wail of humanity, face to face with the agony of death, feeling its utter helplessness before the great enemy, and clinging to any straw which may float within reach of the drowning gasp. It is the horror of life facing death, a horror that seems felt only by the fully living, and not by the dying. It is the recoil of vigorous vitality from the silence and chilliness of the tomb. After this comes a sudden change of tone, and the mourners are told of God's great mercy in taking the departed, and of the burden of the flesh, and they are bidden to give hearty thanks for the dead being delivered out of the miseries of this sinful world. Can anything be more unreal? There is not one mourner there who desires to share in the great mercy, who wants to be freed from the burden of the flesh, or desires deliverance from the misery of this world. Why should people thus play a farce beside the grave? Do they expect God to believe them, or to be deceived by such hypocrisy? It is urged by some that the Church cannot have a sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, as regards some of those whom she buries with this service, and it is manifest that, if the Bible be true, drunkards and others who are to be cast into the lake of fire can scarcely rise to eternal life at the same time, and therefore the Church has no right to express a hope where God has pronounced condemnation. The rubric only shuts out of the hope the unbaptized, the excommunicated, and the suicide. All others have a right to burial at her hands, and to the hope of a joyful resurrection, in spite of the Bible. We may hope that the day will soon come, when people may die in England, and may be buried in peace, without this cry of pain and superstition over their graves. Wherever cemeteries are within reasonable distance, the rationalist may now be buried, lovingly and reverently, without the echo of that in which he disbelieved, during life, sounding over his grave. But throughout many small towns and country villages, the burial service of the church is practically obligatory, and is enforced by clerical bigotry. But the passing knell of the establishment sounds clearer and clearer, and soon those who have rejected her services in life shall be free from her ministrations at the tomb. End of chapter 20